The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations. By Black & Veatch, building a world of difference. By CanDo, providing actionable insights from utility wastewater data to improve environmental and public health. By Mentor APM, intelligent asset management software built for water. By 374 Water, pioneering a new era in sustainability. By Woodard & Curran, high-quality consulting engineering science and operations services. By Interra, innovation and stewardship for a sustainable tomorrow. By Xylem, let's solve water. And by the American Water Works Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. This is Session 225. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGibson. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGibson and thank you so much for joining me. I hope everyone is having a great holiday season. We have a fantastic guest for you today. We have Evan Thomas who is an environmental engineering professor with a bioastronautics PhD, uh, and he works at the University of Colorado Boulder. And in addition to that, he founded a company called Verity. Verity is a fascinating company. They have deployed a network of sensors in African nations to facilitate water security, but it's not just a sensor network. It marries up satellite data, and it is, it's, Evan, simply put, get ready to get your socks knocked off by Evan. He is just fascinating, uh, and a great interview. So you will really enjoy this episode. And as you know, we always say thank you to our awesome sponsors at the top of every show, uh, sponsors for the water sponsors of the water values podcast for 2022 include black and Veatch, can do mentor APM 374 water Woodard and Curran in Terra Xylem and the American water works association. That, my friends, is a terrific collection of impactful companies that have decided to support water industry thought leadership and education. So thank you to all the sponsors, and I'd like for you, the listener, to do me a favor, if you would, please. If you work for or with any of the sponsors, please thank your boss or your contact at the sponsor firm and let them know that you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. You'd be surprised how far that simple little note of thanks will go. And as long as you're letting the sponsors know you appreciate their support of water industry education and thought leadership, why not leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, or whatever other podcast directory you happen to be accessing the podcast on. It'd be greatly appreciated and, of course, helps others find out the, find out about the podcast. And also, please don't forget to actually subscribe to the podcast. That's also very much appreciated. Well, before we head on to this terrific interview uh, with Evan Thomas. Let's get to uh, our Bluefield on Tap segment, uh, the final BOT for 2022 with Reese Tisdale. So take it away, guys. Reese, welcome to another Bluefield on Tap. Happy holidays. How are you? Uh, I'm pretty good, Dave. Pretty good. Uh, just living the World Cup dream for another day. <laughs> I've got until about noon tomorrow, I think, uh, to for it all to fall apart. But hey, I'll be. Uh, skeptically optimistic that yes. we can do it. So, you know, in the, in the, uh, Peyton Manning, um, David Beckham commercials, is it soccer or football? Oh, uh, that's a good question. Uh, well, well yeah. What's it, what's uh, it in your household? Is it soccer or football? Well, it's funny. Cause my wife's family is, they're all English. Um, 
but we th- call it soccer. Right. But I'm true. I'm true blue. Just for everybody <laughs> to know. So they can do it. Good deal. Uh, what What are we talking about this week? What's What's striking the folks at Bluefield in the water sector this month? So for those not in the know, we uh, we just released our capital expenditure and operating expenditure uh, forecast, or one package for the U.S. and Canada. So. It appears that there are lots of dollars on the table to be spent uh, through 2030, and we're pretty excited to um, see how it rolls out because there are a lot of factors that are shaping it, you know, driving different scenario outlooks. Yeah, it's it's always interesting to take a look at those uh, forecasts and what utilities are spending their money on. What are some of the key takeaways that you uh, have identified? Well, I mean, the bottom line is we're still in at Bluefield. We've gone through this exercise multiple times over the past couple of years. And by that, I think three or four, and partly because the pandemic supply chain uh, pressures. Now we're heading potentially, I don't know where we are when it comes to recession. So there's still a lot of uncertainty in the air. And we've taken that into account in these forecasts and provided multiple scenarios. But a couple of things that we've really looked at is sort of, you know, basically the age of infrastructure. So obviously everybody's focused on that water quality issues. You and I have specifically talked about Jackson and what things like that mean Um, climate, but then also just labor and energy impacts on operating costs. Right. I mean, that's also influencing chemicals. So there are all these factors that are driving it. And what we've done is we've compared sort of the, I guess, eight, nine year outlook to 2030, both in looking at an accelerated inflationary market if it stays as you know what it is today, or do we just sort of revert back or regress back to our historical trends? And there's a big difference. Yeah. So uh, let's let's start with capex. What are you? What uh, are the big areas where utilities are planning to spend money? Well, I think you know one of the things when we look at capex, um, we really we break out the market in two different ways. We break it out into vertical assets, meaning the the above ground uh, plants and treatment systems, whether it be for water and wastewater, and we also look at the linear assets, so the net water wastewater pipe networks that are underground. And so, what we're seeing is the vertical assets this time around represent about sixty six percent of the total expenditures for water and wastewater. So, you know, there's a lot going into advanced treatment for things like PFAS, right? That's a big, you know, topic du jour, but there's a lot of uh, system upgrades that need to happen there. On the linear side, you know, one of the issues, quite honestly, is when you start looking at uh, at housing starts, right? The new build for pipes, networks, a lot of it, the new build depends on housing starts. And so if that market really softens, particularly over the next you know, two or three years because of high mortgage rates, then that that piece of the market uh, takes a bit of a hit. So pipe suppliers are probably more concerned than um, maybe the advanced treatment players are. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned supply chain. How, how does the constrained supply chain impact CapEx? You know, I'm, I'm thinking that if, if – Lead times are not as long as they had been. That maybe the the we're we're going to get more bang for our buck um, potentially because prices might be depressed a little bit. Am I thinking about that the right way, or what? What's your well? 
Yeah, no, I think it's a good point. And I think the, the supply chain issue still continues. Um, but I would say it, it's softening a bit. And it, I think one, the barometer is, you know, just prices as a whole. And so what we've done is just looked over the last two or three years, uh, as well as historic, but over the last two years, you know, iron and steel prices are up 93%. Plastic fittings are up 80%. Concrete pipe is up 20%. Pumps are up 20%. So they're all pretty high, right? The bigger issue is when we look at the historical numbers is it's not like if everything goes back to how it was, those prices revert back to zero to, you know, to, to the, to the, to the baseline. What ends up happening is they typically fall only about, you know, 60 ish percent of the high. Right. And so they may remain high for a for a while. And, and that's what is really impacting the forecast. The You know, when it comes to supply chain, you know, ports seem to be opening up. I mean, who knows what's going to happen if there's a rail strike. That's a whole nother matter that's in the news today. But uh, speaking of uncertainty. Yeah. What about um, how the Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan infrastructure law impact CapEx? You know, there's, there's a lot of money getting pumped into utilities is that driving some of this? Well, there's it's driving enthusiasm, most definitely. I think when you think about the, let's look at the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, which is really where a lot of the CapEx dollars are coming from. A lot of that for, for water, I mean, $25 billion of the 55 new spending for water and wastewater is really dedicated towards things like PFAS or emerging contaminants and lead. Right. So that's not what I would call necessarily big infrastructure, but also a lot of it's going to disadvantaged communities. And I think this is a ch- question I posed to the to the analyst uh, a couple of weeks ago. And that is, well, if all of this is going to disadvantaged communities, how are we defining disadvantaged communities? Every state has a different definition. So my concern from a company looking at the market is, if they're if if disadvantaged communities, which are re- receiving a big chunk of that, they're not clearly defined. Is that going to slow the rollout of those dollars right until everything is in place? And a lot of that's going to go through state revolving funds. Yeah, the Inflation Reduction Act is a whole nother matter. It's not really an re- Inflation Reduction Act. It's really an Energy Act, Clean Energy <laughs> Act. So don't get me wrong. I'm excited about that because energy transition means different challenges for the water sector as well, whether it be green hydrogen, whether it be a changing uh, uh, power fleet in the U.S., plus you know mining for minerals. It all uses water. So I'm excited about that, but yeah. a little bit different. Well, I, I look at the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, I've already had multiple clients ask about uh, how they can use the direct pay provisions. There's a lot of municipal utilities trying to get very uh get get the jump on using those direct pay provisions so i think you're right i think there's a lot lot to be sorted out uh real quick before we sign off uh in your analysis of the capex spend uh any any geographical differences yeah yeah so i mean this is always we always ask where are the most dollars going to go well you probably don't even have to look at, you don't have to use our research to figure that out. I can tell you the largest markets for total expenditures are going to be California, Texas, Florida, and New York. Go figure. Those are the most populous, biggest states in the U.S. Where it gets more interesting is 
when you start looking at fastest growing markets, but also highest spend per capita markets. And by that, by markets, I mean states. So fastest growing, I'll give you the top five, Utah, Idaho, District of Columbia, Washington, and is that five? And then Texas. Texas is actually a fast growing market. So of the big states, they sort of crack that top five. High spend per capita, South and North Dakota, and Vermont, Colorado, and Wyoming. So what's really interesting, that's not a lot of people live in those states, but you know those dollars are going a long way when it comes to per capita spend. So that's where it gets a little bit interesting. And you know, if like I always say, California's a tough place to do business. It's really competitive. Everybody wants to be there. There are a lot of dollars, but it's not the easiest market. So sometimes looking at maybe the fastest growing or more interesting. Always great insights, Reese. Thank you so much. And I very much look forward to seeing how all this plays out over the coming uh, 12 months or so. Well, I'll be here. I'll be here all day. <laughs> so just give me a call whenever you want to talk more about it. Thanks. Thank all right. Thanks, Take care. Reese. All right. Have a great holiday. We'll talk to you soon. You too. All right. Bye. As always, great information from Bluefield Research and Reese Tisdale. And now without further ado, let's get to our awesome guest, Evan Thomas. So let's get that water flowing. Well, Evan, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. So glad you could come on. How are you doing today? Yeah, thanks, David. Appreciate the time. Yeah. So for our listeners that uh, may not know who you are and what you do, could you please give us a little uh, background on uh, who you are and what you're doing these days? Sure. I'm the, I'm the founder and CEO of Verity, which is a company that specializes in using sensors and remote sensing to try to improve water security globally. And sometimes that means water conservation, like in drought-prone areas like the Western U.S. And other times it means water access, like making sure people have water in another drought-prone region of the world like East Africa, or making sure people have clean, treated drinking water like in places like Rwanda. And Verity came out of my research lab at the University of Colorado Boulder, where I'm also a professor of environmental engineering, and I'm the director of the Mortensen Center in Global Engineering. So, Evan, how did you get into this space? Yeah, well, don't tell my students, but <laughs> I've never taken a class in environmental engineering. I'm actually an aerospace engineer. My PhD is in aerospace engineering, bioastronautics, which means the study uh, and support of human life in space. And the beginning of my career was at the NASA Johnson Space Center in Houston, where I helped develop technologies to both manage and recycle and test uh, the quality of drinking water up on the International Space Station. The astronauts on the International Space Station need the same things that you and I do and everybody else on the planet. They need clean water, clean air, safe sanitation, safe, warm place to sleep. When you look at things like air, air is compressible. We can shove it down into scuba tanks and set it up to the space station. But water is incompressible. So it's actually very expensive to send clean drinking water up to the space station all the time. So instead of sending them clean water, we actually recycle the water that's already on the space station. And that comes from people. You know, your your average human uh, adult respires. We breathe out about a liter of water a day. We perspire. We sweat about a liter of water a day. And we urinate. We pee out about a liter of water a day. And up on the space station, we take those three liters of water that's coming from everybody and we recycle it. And so today's coffee is also tomorrow's coffee is also yesterday's coffee. <laughs> and in the beginning of uh, my career, I developed technologies both for managing that water and also testing that water to make sure that it's safe to drink. But 
David, you know, we still have a billion people here on planet Earth that don't have safe, clean drinking water every day. Some people don't have water at all because they're in places that are already being impaired by climate change and drought. And so they have water insecurity. Other people have water insecurity because the water's dirty and they're drinking dirty drinking water, which contributes to even now, even in 2022, one of the leading causes of illness and death globally. About 3 million children under the age of five still die every year because of diarrhea, largely associated with with unclean drinking water and unsafe sanitation. Yeah. So you, you mentioned Verity, the, the spinoff from your your uh, lab there. H- how does that relate to what you just talked about? You know, we still have, as I mentioned, a billion people that don't have clean water. And it's not because we don't have technologies for treating water or pumping water or storing water. Now, in some areas of the world, even if that infrastructure is there, it's impaired because of climate change. Uh, you know, climate change, the earliest effect of climate change is that dry places get drier. So if, for example, in East Africa today, there are 40 million people facing food insecurity and facing the risk of famine right now. Uh, we're now in the fifth season of unprecedented drought, and that's caused by climate change. When people see less rainfall in these drought-prone areas, they turn to the use of groundwater and groundwater pumps. And these are very expensive pumps that are often funded by either the national government, like in Kenya, or international donors like USAID or the World Bank or UNICEF. And they're pumping up water to make sure that people and livestock have access to water during drought. But roughly half of that, those kinds of water pumps in sub-Saharan Africa are broken in the middle of a drought. The infrastructure is actually broken because there isn't the necessary budget and tax base and support to maintain that water access, which leads to what we call drought emergencies. As Verity, one of the technologies we've developed is a satellite-connected sensor that is remotely monitoring about 4 million people's water supplies right now in the region. We have about a thousand pumps. Each of those pumps is serving water to several thousand people. And that data helps tell us where there's water demand, where there's water access. And when a pump is broken, we can help communicate that to agencies like in Kenya, the National Drought Management Authority or local county governments to help go and try to improve borehole repairs and water access. So that's one of the important uses of the Verity technology is just to tell us when a pump is broken so that it can be fixed. Yeah. So I got a couple questions on that. First off, how did you recognize that this was an issue even? And then the second question is, how did you identify the technology that could be used to solve that problem? You know, my my other day job at the University of Colorado is concerned with these kinds of research questions. Why is it that a billion people still don't have access to clean drinking water? It's not because we need another invention of a water pump or a water filter. It's the entire system behind water services. In low and low-income countries and resource-constrained areas, there's just not really the tax base for people to be able to pay the full cost of their water services. And by the way, neither you nor I pay the full cost for water services either. Let me take a quick detour on that. I'm I'm speaking to you from Boulder, Colorado, where we have the privilege of a lot of water. We have reservoirs and dams that have been built uh, a long time ago, paid for by the federal and state government. We have a big tax base. We don't have really high density 
um, population. And yet, even with all of that privilege and all of those natural resources and economic resources, when I pay my water bill, I'm only paying about 60% of the cost of delivering water to my house. So even in Boulder, Colorado, we don't pay the full cost of our water supply, let alone the people living in northern Kenya or in rural Rwanda uh, or in central Congo or central Nigeria, who have even fewer resources, both natural and capital, and yet are ex essentially expected to pay the full cost of delivering their own water supply. The upside of that is people don't have water. People don't have reliable access to safe drinking water year round. So it's a system, it's an economic system, it's a political and social system, as well as an engineering challenge. We identified data as an important gap. You know, it's, it's kind of easy to ignore this, this problem if you don't really have it uh, sitting in front of you. And if it's not visible to donors and governments and communities and individuals, about where there is water and where there isn't. So we developed our technology and our, and our data services to draw attention to these problems. They're not a solution by themselves. Sensors and data don't fix pumps, but sensors and data can enable a conversation that can change policies over time so that water pumps are fixed. Yeah, got it. So um, how does the technology actually work? How do you, how do you figure out, because that's, that's the part I'm struggling with right now is, is the is it just sensors on the on the equipment that that just how, how does it work so we developed uh, a technology platform that lets us go to any pump anywhere in the world we've never seen it before uh install a, is install a sensor system and walk away in in less than an hour what we've designed around is being able to monitor the function of the pump so are the pumps actually working are they actually delivering water we uh, connect that data over satellite networks, and then that data is aggregated across all of the pumps that we have in all countries and linked with remote sensing data. So a different satellite technology, Earth observation satellites that are looking at things like rainfall, greenness, uh, um, soil moisture, variety of other indicators that are combined into a machine learning model so that we can actually say not only what's happening at a particular pump and predicting when that pump is working and when that pump is broken, but also forecasting out as much as three months in advance what the demand for water is. This was a project or a capability that was funded by NASA and USAID, the United States Agency for International Development, to link satellite data with our sensor data so that we can forecast where people have a demand for groundwater. And that lets policymakers and implementers go out and pre-position water. So whether it's going out and fixing boreholes in advance of drought or pre-positioning water trucking, or even in some cases, moving people around to where water is available uh, for themselves and for their livestock. And so on the local level, we're connecting a borehole in the middle of nowhere to the cloud. And on a regional level, we're able to then combine all that data together with other satellite data to actually tell us what's happening in advance of drought and in advance of drought emergencies. Wow, that is fascinating. I, I, I would have never expected, because I, I thought initially when I heard about this, it was just you were, you were monitoring the pumps, and if the pump wasn't working or for an extended period of time, it was broken. But you're really getting into predictive analytics and machine learning. I mean, how, that seems like um, it is going to be – how has that worked? Uh, how long have you been doing this, and, and do you have some results that you can share with us? 
Yeah, so we had a we had a contract with NASA over the past three years through the University of Colorado to work with our colleagues in Kenya to develop that service. And so we just started actually implementing it this past summer, again, during this unprecedented drought. And what we've been able to do is work with the Kenya National Drought Management Authority to take our forecasts and then integrate them into actions that are taken. So as I said, things like water trucking, borehole repairs, even moving people around uh, to where there's water access and where there's also fodder access for livestock. These are all uh, capabilities that have been supported by our system. We also support the famine early warning system, which is a US government network to help pre-position food relief from the FAO and the WFP so that people actually have food after crops have failed. Well, it, it just goes to show you that there's always a lot more to a picture than meets the eye. Um, so I, how have you been able to, or are there applications for this beyond what you're using it for? I mean, ha, have you have you exported or imported the technology back to the U.S. to do anything? In in Africa, the big question is water access, making sure that people have water pumps that are working and delivering clean water. In the U.S., it's the same technology, but with kind of the opposite problem. Here in the western U.S., we have the Colorado River. The Colorado River starts uh, just over the hills here in Boulder, and about 40 million people and a huge fraction of the economy in the western U.S. relies on water out of the Colorado River. But as I'm sure you know, the Colorado River's literal high water line was over 150 years ago when the Colorado River Compact was written. And every year since then, on average, uh, the water levels have gone down, demand has gone up. And as a result, the Hoover Dam is within 30 feet of the inlet. If something drastic doesn't happen this year, either a really, really wet year of a lot of snow or some major both state and federal intervention, there will no longer be water running through the Hoover Dam at Lake Mead by the end of next summer for the first time in history, for the first time since it was filled. And that's a major economic impact in the Western US, but it's also a major uh, downstream ecological impact, which is that you end up, end up pumping groundwater. About half of the water that is used in the West for agriculture is groundwater, and yet that water is almost entirely unregulated. So out in California, where we are also working, the state passed the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act a few years ago that for the first time requires both the monitoring and ultimately the capping of groundwater use so that we don't mine all the groundwater totally dry. Uh, you know, it's so extreme that there's areas in the Central Valley of California that have literally dropped. The, 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 the ground itself has dropped 40 feet in the past 80 years because the balloon of water in the in the aquifer has been has been pumped dry. So we have to get a handle on groundwater pumping. The technology we developed as Verity for Africa is also perfectly suited for monitoring these groundwater pumps in the United States. So we now have customers in Colorado and in California that are using our technology to remotely monitor their pumping with the idea of being conserving of water and conserving of electricity. Yeah, so uh can you expand on that a little more in terms of how is how is what have the impacts been? Uh, have you seen results from from these the groundwater monitoring? I mean, I, I'm just kind of curious how things have gone. Yeah, so there's the carrot and stick with things like 
uh, environmental regulation. So, you know, it's a stick to say you have to pump less water, but it's a carrot if you can say we're going to pay you to use less electricity and to use less water. Out in California, we can marry the objective of water conservation, groundwater conservation, with the incentives that are offered by the electricity utilities to use less electricity. Uh, out in California, it's called demand response or automated demand response, where the utility sometimes needs capacity back and they need to get different users of electricity to use less so that they don't have brownouts and blackouts. During a drought in the middle of summer, you have farmers pumping water during the middle of the day and they're pumping water from you know hundreds and hundreds of feet down. So it's a lot of electricity used to pull that groundwater out. And it happens at the same time of year and in the same years that you also have a lot of electricity demand for air conditioners and uh, and other users of electricity. So with automated demand response, we can actually take over the control of pumps, turn them off during peak demand, and both Verity and our landowner and grower customers can get paid by the utility. And it can be up to thousands of dollars per year per pump just to use less electricity. And this is becoming uh, increasingly imperative. We're now in the 22nd year of a mega drought in the Western US. It's the first mega drought in more than 1200 years. And we're now entering the third decade of this mega drought. So demands for electricity, demands for groundwater are only increasing. Yeah, you talked about a great example of the energy water food security network net nexus. Um, that I, I it just encapsulates it perfectly how you just, just just described it. Do you have any any idea what the future holds for this? I mean, what are we going to be looking at uh, as we as we go forward using this technology? There are not easy answers to this question of water security. We're not making new water. There's there's some opportunities for desalination, but that will work mo more on the coast. Now, if the coast, uh, like the western coast of the United States, can desalinate water and provide that for uh, urban settings, that can decrease pressure on other water sources more inland. But ultimately, the game is to conserve water, which means that there will have to be incentives to conserve water, to switch crops, to return some land uh, to nature, and over time make more room for better uses of that water. But of course, it's a highly political issue, way above my pay grade. Our role is to just provide the data. Nobody really knows who's using groundwater, where and how much. And there's a lot of uh, issues of trust and transparency among different users of water. So what we try to do, just like in Africa, where the use of the data is to try to enable policy changes, it's the same thing here in the U.S. Ultimately, the data can lead to better actions taken by communities and governments to conserve water. Great points. Great points. What about using the technology in uh in, in other applications beyond water, is there any are there any future initiatives you've got going on from there from that point? As you mentioned, you know, there's this thing called the food water energy nexus. So, you know, the earliest impacts of climate change is changing rainfall, but that immediately impacts food availability and it immediately impacts electricity demand. So you have this intersection of water demand, energy demand and food. Our Verity technologies can be used to monitor water, to monitor water quality, but can also be used, we're developing sensors for monitoring soil carbon, 
and also technologies for helping to conserve electricity. And there's a there's another dimension of this, which are, are the economic incentives. We have innovated different business models to take climate financing, money that is normally available for trying to reduce emissions to the atmosphere, create technologies like carbon capture and storage, and steer it towards water access and water security. So I can give you an example of this. In Africa, many, many people drink untreated water, and it leads to that contaminated water uh, leads to, again, one of the leading causes of illness and death globally, which is diarrhea. If people treat their water, usually what they'll do is they'll boil it with wood or fossil fuels like kerosene. A number of years ago, our team developed a business model where we could provide clean drinking water treatment through water filters and other technologies using entirely renewable energy, but then commoditize that as carbon credits where we offset both the actual use of kerosene and fossil fuels and wood, as well as the demand for energy that isn't being met. And instead people are drinking dirty water and commoditize that as carbon credits. And so we are doing that. We innovated this originally and demonstrated it in both Rwanda and Kenya. And we're now taking these, these concepts to scale where we can operate as a business delivering clean water services reliably and continuously and be paid uh, based on the revenue generated from carbon credit commodities. And this is a really important demonstration about how climate financing can be used to provide basic water security. Yeah. Can you expand on that? That's a fascinating angle. I'd love to hear more about that. So the way that water services are often delivered in low and uh, low income areas or resource constrained areas is a government utility that often doesn't have capacity to make sure that everything's working all the time. So to make sure that treatment's happening or to make sure that a water pump's happening, a lot of that work is subsidized by nonprofits uh, or international donors like UNICEF or USAID or the World Bank. But it's a, a cycle that always requires a new infusion of donor funding. And, you know, yet still, we don't really have universal access to clean drinking water. Meanwhile, climate financing is growing. There are things called carbon credits that that commoditize and monetize removal or uh, reduction of emissions to the atmosphere. And the buyers of these carbon credits right now tend to be U.S. publicly traded companies that have made public commitments to reducing their emissions and to being net zero by 2050. So all of these net zero commitments that have been made by companies, some of those emissions reductions can happen by becoming more energy efficient, by switching to renewable electricity uh, sources. Um, but you can't eliminate all emissions. A, an airline is probably never going to be able to be net zero emissions just based on the things that they do within their own company. So an airline will have to buy carbon credits from another company or another organization or a country that is reducing emissions elsewhere. So when we deliver clean drinking water in Africa and it reduces both the use and the demand for biomass and fossil fuels, we can sell those credits to a corporation that then gets to reduce, show that on their books as a reduction in their own emissions. It's not a perfect model. Uh, it still ultimately is redirecting capital from rich countries 
uh, into the places where the impacts of capitalism are being felt, right? Capitalism created climate change. Climate change is impacting the poorest people in the world. This is a small way of uh, redirecting some of that, that accumulation of wealth into reparations for the damages that are being caused by climate change. Got it. Got it. I'd also make the note that, that, uh, you know, markets are not perfect. And so I think climate change is an externality that has never been built into the economic model that we've been, been offering. At least that's my position. So. Oh, absolutely. You know, a carbon credit right now might be worth about $20, but the, best models out there say that if we really wanted to change behavior, if we really wanted to restructure capitalism and, re- and use markets towards actually reducing emissions meaningfully, a carbon credit would have to be valued at $200. So there are certainly, while it's a movement in the right direction, we still have a long way to go. Yep. Well, Evan, this has been fascinating. I have learned so much. It's been great speaking with you. Uh, before we sign off, do you have a leave behind message that you would like to, uh, to send out to the listeners? So COP27 is coming up in Egypt. Maybe it's happened by the time this this podcast airs. COP27 is, uh, for the first time, focusing on Africa and on water. And these are the places and topics that are most impacted by climate change. Water generally uh, is is an increasingly scarce resource globally. About a quarter of the world's population is facing water insecurity. That's what we're all going to see, whether it's floods or hurricanes or droughts. Uh, or impaired water quality. This is what we're all going to see as some of the earliest impacts of climate change. And we have to get a handle on it. And we have to use the funding that's available from corporations and from governments to redirect it to making sure that people have safe, reliable water access globally, whether that's agricultural users in the United States or people living in sub-Saharan Africa, just trying to make sure that they have clean drinking water every day. Right. Excellent points. I, I love the leave behind message. So Evan, for those folks who want to find out more about you, find out more about Verity, find out more about your work as a professor at CU, um, where can they go to get that information? Yeah, my Twitter is at Prof Evan Thomas, and you can find us at Verity.com or uh, Colorado.edu slash center slash Mortensen. Awesome. Well, Evan, thanks so much. Uh, until next time. Have a great one. And maybe if maybe next time I make it out to Boulder, uh, we could get a coffee at the, the Laughing Goat or something like that down on Pearl Street. Please do. We'll, we'll, we'll make sure it's uh, from not, not from a recycled source. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, Evan, thanks so much. Have a great holiday and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, David. Bye. What a great interview by Evan. Awesome to learn about how he and Verity are helping with water security in Africa and doing so in a climate sensitive manner. Also very interested uh, to hear how that technology is also facilitating programs in the United States. So I tip my hat to you, Evan. Thank you so much. Well, I'd love to know what you thought about the interview. Please check out the show notes page for links and information on this episode. You just Google the Water Values Podcast and click the first thing that comes up. That's our landing page on Bluefield Research's website. Again, Bluefield Research and the Water Values LLC are not affiliates. We just have a joint marketing arrangement And as part of that joint marketing arrangement, Bluefield gives us a home on the web. If you still use Twitter, you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervalues, and you can tweet at me using my handle at DTM1993. You can email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com, and you can sign up for the newsletter at that landing page as well. 
Thank you again for tuning in, and I hope you make it a great year and have a great holiday season. Plus, I want to give a huge thank you to our sponsors. Again, sponsors of the Water Values Podcast include Black & Veatch, Can Do, Mentor APM, 374 Water, Woodard & Curran, Intera, Xylem, and the American Water Works Association. Thank you so much for your support. This show would not be possible without those great companies and industry leaders. And again, thank you for listening and subscribing to the Water Values Podcast. I truly appreciate it, and I hope you all have a wonderful holiday. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the water values podcast thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me well thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer i'm a lawyer licensed in indiana and colorado and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else additionally nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment i'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.